Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Happy autumnal equinox, everyone. Uh, uh, everyone has been enjoying the first few days of fall. Uh, welcome to another episode of Nightlight. Um, with Columbus Day right around the corner, let's delve into ancient Native history tonight. Um, the 18th annual AAPS conference is being held in Harris, Michigan on October 6th and 7th, and tonight we'll be discussing the merits of this conference and worthy presenters. Um, uh, we should be having Judy Johnson, the uh, uh, conference producer, uh, calling in in ju- just a minute. Um, Crystal and Wayne Trickle are here. And I was uh, fortunate enough to work with uh, Crystal and Ida Jane Gallagher uh, 10 years ago when I was on um, another network. Um, And you you may know Ida Jane from her book, uh, Contact with Ancient America. Um, Let's see. uh, Phil Leonard is here as well. And, you know, uh going to be looking at a lot of uh, the archaeoastronomy from the uh, panhandle of Oklahoma, Kansas, uh, southeastern Colorado. So you know, uh, we don't really touch on you know, the Plains area too much. And I think uh, by the time tonight's show is over, you're going to have a – thorough understanding of um, what was, you know, what um, 
a lot of the native cultures and possibly people from the old world uh, were doing in that part of the country. So, um, hi everyone. How how are you doing? Thank you for joining us. We're doing great, Mark. Great. Glad glad to hear that. Okay. Um, I don't know if we're still waiting for G to call in, but um, you know, Crystal, let's start off with uh, you. Uh, you know, you ha- have been uh, living in uh, Kansas for a while. Yeah, Mark, I don't. I've, I've never been about- there. Yeah, I've been here for about 24 years, and I I tell you, Mark, Kansas is drive-through country usually, but if you come and move here, you'll find that there's this great contribution to ancient American history sitting here Mm -hmm. in the middle of the country that we've been able to explore and delve into, and along the way, I've made a lot of friends and, and had some great mentors in Phil and Ida Jane both. Phil, by the way, has several books on archaeoastronomy and, and ancient inscriptions. But my journey here in Kansas, uh, Mark, has been one of excitement because of the various ancient sites that are here. So I know your audience uh-huh. isn't familiar with the plains, but we really do have a lot to contribute to ancient American history. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the... Um nice things about our show is you know when we get I guess like you talking about you know a state that is you know not you know you know just say high profile um, you know they want our listeners want to learn about what's there what makes the area uh, unique. So, uh, you know, let's just get into, you know, a little sample of what you have seen in Kansas and, you know, we'll we'll work in uh, other people's perspectives as well. So, Crystal, do you want to uh, tell us a about one of your you know, uh, more favorite spots to uh, uh, research, and we'll go from there. Sure, Mark. We have we have roughly about eight solar aligned sites here in Kansas. There are far more petroglyph sites where you will see inscriptions in the cliff faces, various rocks in Kansas. You know, we're known as the plains. We don't have an abundant source of rocks here in Kansas, but we do have some rocky outcrops along the riverways, the creek banks, various places. And some of these places, ancient people were able to um, make solar-aligned features so that they could track time. They were, in a, in a sense, or in essence, creating calendars out in the plains with what, what the elements provided. You know, if you lived in Stonehenge, you could mine uh, 
the Priscilla Bluestones from a few hundred miles away in Wales right. and haul them over and make this wonderful monument. But here in the plains, people use small rock shelters or cliff faces, and they would shape the, the outside of the cave or cliff face so that on, say, like the equinox sunrise or sunset, or one of the solstice days, whichever way that pointed, to be able to create a calendar to keep time. We all are just fascinated with what time it is. So the ancient peoples that were here, whether they were native peoples or uh, people from other old world countries that made contact, they were able to know the angle of the sun, the height, and, and exactly where the sun would be to create these uh, calendars in stone, and they didn't just do it with a, a straight line or, a, you know, something simple. Some of them are very elaborate shadow displays. You you remember as a kid, you know, doing the little shadow puppets with your hands? Well, these right. ancient peoples would create an elaborate shadow display to make an ancient motion picture. Yeah, they were very artistic as well as um, ingenuitive, you know, you probably had some engineers and things that that had a lot of ability, but the the artistry that they used is fascinating because they didn't just track the the day of the year. They did it in such a way that it added to the story or it's a major feature of that alignment. So you're really looking at the oldest ancient motion pictures that there are when you see these sites. Okay, um, let's bring in uh, Ida Jane for a a minute. Uh, Ida Jane, you document your uh, studies of this material in your book, uh, Contact with Ancient America. Um, You know, you've visited many places around the world uh, you have it's just filled with uh photos you uh were is it uh what's the appropriate uh, word you were uh, uh, adopted into uh one of the uh Quinac- Quinnipiac, I'm I'm sorry, I mispronounced that, Uh, uh, tribe, is that that right? So, you know, you have, you know, you're working with um, people from all kinds of backgrounds uh, from around the world to uh, put your uh, book together. You know, know, we work together, gee, uh, when... October 4th of 2011. <laughs> Can't believe it's been that long. But um um you know what are what have you uh learned about the human condition with the uh you know the interest in archaeoastronomy uh from around the world? What does it reveal about us? Ancient people were not stupid. They were sophisticated in terms of being able 
to tell the time of the year and what have you uh, through astronomy. And I might mention um, a particular part of my research. I'm a native West Virginian. And um, in 1982, uh, Arnett Hyde, who edited wonderful West Virginia magazines, mm-hmm. uh, called me about a petroglyph in Wyoming County, West Virginia. And the reason he called me was I had written several articles for the magazine on the um, burial mounds in West Virginia and Ohio that have inscribed tablets. Um, Robert Pyle, Virginia archaeologist, had photographed and had been working at a Wyoming County, West Virginia petroglyph site. And he was fascinated by it and wanted to preserve it. Well, just just in the past few weeks, the uh, Register Herald in Beckley, West Virginia, has picked up on this article again, uh, trying to get the railroad that, that runs near the petroglyph to preserve the site. So it's been years now we were trying to preserve our ancient history. Um, my article um, appeared um, in <clears throat> wonderful West Virginia in 1983, along with uh, Pyle's section of the archaeology of the site. And we enlisted uh, Dr. Barry Fell to work on the writings. Um, mm-hmm in the petroglyphs, and uh, they are uh, an alphabet called Ogham, which is very widespread. Uh, It's well known uh, in Ireland, uh, but that's not the earliest time. And the articles in um, wonderful West Virginia uh, stirred up a lot of controversy. And uh, the total information on that is in my book. But the petroglyphs, uh, when translated, uh, it it is aligned with the winter solstice sunrise. And it is uh, a Christian message uh, talking about the birth of Christ. And Dr. Fell um, became interested in this because of uh, a Cairo symbol uh, that appeared on the petroglyphs, and that keyed him uh, to know um, that it had a religious significance. The Cairo um, is the symbol in the Christian church for the name Christ. So um, the full account of this appears in my book, uh, and uh also, uh, in Ohio and West Virginia, the stone tablets that were found inscribed in the mounds right. uh, are of interest, and particularly the old Hebrew. By coincidence, this is um, the Hebrew festival uh, of harvest, uh, Sakat, 
and um, the Hebrew tablets uh, that came out of the Hopewell Mounds in Ohio have been um, studied and, and deciphered by a number of Hebrew scholars. Uh, one in particular um, has a drawing of Moses, uh, and uh, he is so named on the tablet, and the Ten Commandments are inscribed around that. So there's there is a great deal um, of information um, from these areas. Um, uh, and yeah, Phil, might, Phil might pick up on the Ogham alphabet because uh, he knows a lot about it, but it is widespread uh, in the world. Okay. Uh, so, so do you want to take take over for Ida Jane and get into the Ogham alphabet, please? Uh, surely. The uh, uh, it's generally believed uh, that the Irish invented the Ogham alphabet. Uh, there's a problem with that, though, in that uh, we have inscriptions that predate the times that uh, uh, the Irish are supposed to have invented it. And on top of that, uh, there's one of the versions, there are various versions of, of Ogham. Uh, can, it can look like trees. It can look like vertical strokes. It can look like circles. Uh, the, uh, the Druids had different ways of camouflaging their writing so that uh, others would not know what they were saying. That's why there were different versions of it. But mm-hmm. uh, they have names for each of the letters, and uh, they name them different ways. One of the ways is using tree names, and one of the tree names for the Ogham alphabet uh, the tree does not occur in Ireland or England, and so it, it kind of throws a uh, wrench in the works uh, for saying that the Irish invented the Ogham, because the, the tree only appears down in the Black Sea, uh, in the area of the Black Sea, not in the water, but on the shores and uh, in the country surrounding the Black Sea. So uh, a long ways from Ireland. And we have inscriptions that uh, in America that have been dated to a time before the Oldham alphabet was supposedly invented in Ireland. And they have symbols that are duplicates of what occurs in uh the area of the Black Sea, specifically in the town of Trebizond. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, since you know, you gave us an example of the uh, range of uh, you know where where the ancient writings had had been found. Um, Okay, there. You know, people are going to have to be uh, some p- 
people are going to be bringing these ideas with them to America. Uh, you know, what route are they taking to get to uh, Kansas? Uh, you know, out there in the in the central part of the country, you know, what evidence do we have of them you know, get getting to that point, and the, how are they getting there? Uh, all right, I'll be I'll be glad to do that. But I'd like to mention that uh, Ida Jane has been working with us. Uh, we've been working together uh, for. Uh, nearly 40 years, and uh, uh, Ida Jane has been a great contributor to uh, the uh, work that we've been doing and uh, and what we've published. And uh, Crystal's, uh, we've been working with Crystal now for over a decade, and uh, she's been a hard worker doing a lot of things to, to further the cause. But uh, now, how did the people get here? Well, the ocean and waterways are highways. They're not barriers. If we think of the French traders, the fur traders, they didn't walk across America. They paddled their canoes up the rivers and streams to get where they were going because they could carry cargo inside the, the canoe and they could use the water to move more rapidly than they could climb mountains and, and do it that way. And so there's an example that uh, supports the concept that the waterway is a highway rather than a barrier. Now, if you leave the Black Sea and you uh, travel through the Mediterranean outside of uh, uh, what was called the uh, Pillars of Hercules, which is the Rock of Gibraltar, and uh, across the Atlantic Ocean, the uh, currents will bring you here uh, to America. And uh, that's what Christopher Columbus did, was he allowed the current and the trade winds to bring him uh, to America and to the uh, Caribbean and uh, islands. And the, apparently that's what a number of uh, and, uh, people did of various cultures uh, coming to the New World. And you can enter uh, the Mississippi, come up to the Arkansas River, and head west on the Arkansas River, which goes right along the border of Kansas and uh, Oklahoma. And before the, uh, uh, the European settlers and pioneers that uh, we are descendant of plowed the prairie, the prairie held water uh, much more efficiently than it does now so that the waterways were higher, uh, had deeper waters than they do now. And, of course... Uh, a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, the Arkansas River didn't have dams across it, so they were able to freely paddle up the uh, Arkansas River uh, clear into Colorado, wh where the Arkansas River begins. 
Now, their ogum has been found in uh, Spain, in uh, Oklahoma, in Kansas, in Colorado, and uh, West Virginia, several places in the United States, and, uh, of course, it's found in England and Ireland and uh, in uh, some in France. Oh, okay. And uh, Crystal, in you know the, a video you uh, uh, re- recently made of your presentation at a uh, church. Yeah, you, know, you had some photos in there of uh, Tim Severn's uh, Brandon boat from or Brendan uh, boat from. Uh, his 1976 voyage. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing seeing, seeing uh, that at the um, Craigenowen Museum. Uh, but it, yeah, there's your proof that a uh, leather boat can make it across the Atlantic, you know, like Phil was just saying. It, it, Come in from you know, like it, like the Gulf of Mexico and uh, uh, up the rivers and you know, just keep you know keep keep going. Uh, so you know, can can you tell us? Uh, do you want to expand a little bit more on the inland sailing that uh, seems pretty obvious uh, that was going on? Well, Mark, let me just say it to you the easiest way. I I um I I try to keep a running tally of people who have rowed rowboats by themselves across the Atlantic. My count is up to twenty nine individual people who have by themselves rowed a rowboat across the Atlantic Ocean from either the British Isles or the, the west coast of Europe. So it's not that difficult for people to do ocean crossings. The last account I saw was a young man for charity that rode a rowboat all the way across the Atlantic. So it's not that much of a stretch then to see these great uh, waterways that Phil said were highways. And here in the interior part of Kansas, the north central Kansas where we live, we're not very far from that great bend of the Arkansas River. Um, There are some other smaller rivers, such as the Saline River, that runs just north of that, that we do find quite a lot of sites at. But but ancient peoples, these were navigable rivers before the dam project. And so what we've done is is search these riverways for any cliff faces to, to look for petroglyphs and then try to discern if there might be a solar alignment there. And... So we found various ancient scripts. There's, you know, a few of them. But that's kind of the method that we've used to begin our search. And this was years ago with a man named Keith Jeffries that was kind enough to show us some of the sites that he'd found and we've added to that list. But, uh, Mark, if 29 individuals can row a rowboat across the Atlantic, I don't think that the ancient peoples had that difficult of a time 
if they had a seaworthy enough vessel, those oxide little boats like Brendan had, um, the courage that they used, they were very readily repaired if there was a tear in the, the side of the ship. Now, a wooden ship, if it hit ice, would probably get a hole and sink. But because of the ability to repair the little boat like Brendan, the Keurig, they could take those the northerly route where there were icebergs. So I'm not sure if that really answers your question, but just to get into the interior part of America, you have that ability to take the, the river systems and then veer off into other creeks or, or waterways. So that's what we've done here. I, I know that, that that's the method that other people have used. And maybe, um, have I answered your question? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's fine. And you know, I just uh, I wanted to bring... Yes. And what, Mark, Mark, what we uh, do here is we... Yeah, sure. Uh, the, uh, one of the tributaries to the Arkansas River... Uh, is the Cimarron, and on uh, the Cimarron branch, there has been uh, located a large drawing on in the bedrock. Uh, it done very long ago because it's very heavily uh, passionated. That's the coating that uh, builds itself over inscriptions uh, over a period of time, and. Uh, it was found by uh, an archaeologist by the name of Weisendonger, and uh, uh, it's a ship that I have shown to a maritime archaeologist, and she has dated it to about the time of Christ. It's a sailing ship. It shows the sails, the brails that are on the sails. It shows the... Uh, a star, uh, the steerboard, which, uh, you know, we get the term today of starboard. Uh, it comes from steerboard because the steerboard was always attached to the right side of the ship. And, Did not know uh, that. It shows a, a steerboard is clearly visible on that ship and uh, has been identified by uh, a maritime archaeologist that is uh, familiar with Middle Eastern ships. And, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, there were some friends of uh, Ida Jane's and myself, that uh, uh, the Wilsons, who went to uh, Italy and saw a display of uh, ancient Rome uh, trading with other peoples and using... <laughs> Uh, those ships were going back and forth to Rome at that time. The same kind of ship that we have drawn anciently uh, in Oklahoma. Uh, hmm, and okay. I might add that there, there's another site that uh, uh, deals with Ogham uh, and is described with Ogham, and it is a uh, triple planetary conjunction in the uh, a constellation of um, uh, uh, the Noble Twins. And it has been dated by Evans and Sutherland using the Digistar uh, computer, which uh, uh, is a star projector 
that many planetariums use. And uh, they match this to August 8th of 471 A.D. with Olgham inscription in America. Okay. So um, now we're, we're really getting into the archaeoastronomy uh, now with the planetary uh, conjunction of 471 A.D. So, uh, uh, Crystal, is we have that date. Uh, what? Uh, other dates ha- have you been able to uh, determine when uh, you know, transatlantic uh, people are uh, here in America. Uh, we can go back to uh, some of the native cultures. You know, uh, how many other dates ha- have you been able to find uh, uh, you know, by uh, looking at something like a planetary conjunction? Well, I'm fairly confident, Mark, in Cave 1 at Anubis Cave. The first cave has a series, uh, two separate walls. And the the one, Phil can explain the westerly facing constellations there. But on on the north-south facing wall, Mark, there's this fascinating inscription that has a big plus mark in the center and to the left a plus mark and then a diagonal group of plus marks that form the belt stars of Orion with a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction that would have taken place on the morning of around September the 24th, 470 A.D. And these Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions are were by many ancient peoples, they were watched closely because they're easier to watch along with Venus. But I feel pretty confident about that because there were four separate astronomers, professional astronomers, that when that was presented to them at Anubis Cave, they got their cell phones out and pulled up their astronomical apps and they agreed with that, that they could see that that was a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction above Orion. And um, so that's a date, and I think I feel pretty good about that as far as four other astronomers agreeing. Um, then there's some other cupules that are representational of, of constellations that may go back quite a lot further. And we have one here in Kansas that may have Draco depicted when the the pole star was in Draco. They at least drew the the constellations in the quadrants of the sky. Um, So you may be in the BC era, but those are things that we have a, a pretty good idea of. Ida Jane, do you have anything like that with your research that you've done? Well, the um, Cairo symbols on the um, West Virginia petroglyph, um, Cairo symbols can be fairly well dated. And um, 
uh, Barry Fell <clears throat> dated those in about the 6th century A.D. So um, <clears throat> that gives a, a, an idea of dating of the Wyoming County, West Virginia petroglyph. Okay, thanks. Well, I think if, if you're looking for dates that go back in time uh, prior to Columbus, we have something that goes even uh, before the time of Christ that uh, can be dated, and that is uh, there are some inscriptions which I have published in uh, a journal. Uh, the, uh, the title of the journal is Pre-Columbiana. Journal of Long Distance Contacts, and uh, uh, it is uh, edited by uh, Professor Stephen Jett, uh, Emeritus of uh, uh, University of California, Davis. And in that uh, article, which I I, uh, co-authored with a fellow that uh, is from the nation of Oman, and his name is Ali Ahmed al-Shahri. And uh, he had heard that I had inscriptions here in America that match the inscriptions that he has been finding uh, for the last two decades in uh, Oman. And uh, wow. those, the alphabet was used at a time uh, r- roughly spanning 300 B.C. to 100 A.D. And that is the alphabet that is standing next to the ship that I had described and uh, with the uh, sails and the steerboard and, and uh, that sort of thing. It is, it is a 60-foot-long inscription next to that ship. Okay, and... So, since we've been uh, talking a little bit about uh, Anubis Cave, um, you participated in the episode in which uh, Scott Walter uh, um, uh, studied uh, that cave uh, for the uh, you know, uh, summer solstice, or uh, I forget what time he was there. Uh, the but, equinox. Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay, uh, the the equinox. Can, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you, you know, what Scott was doing on that episode? What you know? What was his uh, purpose for analyzing uh, the Anubis Cave? Well. It, it is uh, without him stating very specifically uh, what his purpose was. It, it appeared fairly clear to me that he saw that as an important uh, cave and alignment. The, the contents of the caves. There's actually five caves there, and the uh, uh, the caves have inscriptions that are very important and very revealing as to uh, what belief system the uh, perpetrators of those uh, that put the inscriptions there, uh, what their belief system was, 
and that gave us a clue as to where they were from, uh, along with the the fact that they had writing and some other things there. And he w- he felt that it was important, at least he uh, uh, said so to me, that it was a, a, a very important uh, cave system and that he felt it was important to record it and to show it to uh, the people, the uh, general public. Okay. All right. You know, Phil will come back uh, to you in a minute, but uh, um, Judy is um, here. Uh, so, Judy, you have... Uh, you know, Crystal doing a great job uh, discussing archaeoastronomy. Um, you know, who else do you have lined up for your conference th- this year? Is Judy on mute? Okay. Mark, um, she speaks so softly. The connection is so bad you can barely hear her. So, and and she's called in twice. So, um, okay. I, uh, if she's calling in on a cell phone, maybe she should use a landline. But you can you can't hear her. Okay. Okay. Well, um, I'll I'll let her know. Um, Okay. So, uh, Phil, you were just talking about. Um, you know the belief system. We were talking earlier about Dr. Fell's uh, b- belief in the uh, religious significance of the writings, and you know I- Ida Jane was just talking about the Cairo symbols. Um, you know, how, how much of what everyone has been r- researching is really some kind of monument about uh, many different faiths? Well, there Um, there certainly is, uh, Mark. There's certainly different faiths. We we could take you right over here in Kansas and tell you about a four-foot-tall representation of of Baal or Baal, the ancient Phoenician and, and Celtic god Baal. Other things, various other things, but when you go out through Kansas, you'll find different things. But I'm going to tell you, in the Oklahoma Panhandle, that southeastern Colorado region, you have this great mixture of ancient American inscriptions of of native people, but also some very unique inscriptions that Phil can get into that actually have kind of a mysterious and Ida Jane knows this as well. Uh, let them elaborate on it, Mark. Let them tell you about it. Okay. Uh, Ida Jane, do you want to uh, continue with your observations? Well, <laughs> I, I've observed uh, a lot of things um, throughout the world. And in... <clears throat> uh, um, New England, we have um, <clears throat> sorry many stone structures. Um, 
that are comparable to things you find um, in Ireland and in Europe. Uh, they're, uh, they call them chambers, <clears throat> and many are solar aligned. Okay. Uh, they're they're uh, mostly uh, oriented towards the sun. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, many of them are, um, and um, uh, they find this in in other parts of the world too. Um, <clears throat> uh, even, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Even South Africa, and South Africa has Ogham inscriptions. And um, Dr. <clears throat> I'm sorry, my voice is giving out on me. <clears throat> so you had, had worked with Credo Mutwa there, Ida Jane? Yes. Yeah, Dr. Credo Mutwa, the Vulu witch doctor. That has an ogham inscribed relics. Yes. <clears throat> okay. Uh, uh, what? What, <clears throat> what did you learn uh, from Doctor Fredo? He, <clears throat> I'm sorry. They they also use the ogham alphabet there. And <clears throat> when he saw photos of our chambers. He said they have the same thing in South Africa. Hmm. Okay, and, and you also uh, uh, document uh, like maze how. Um, right. Yeah, you know, you've tra- traveled pretty extensively, seeing uh, you know. Equinoxes and uh, solar, as well as other celestial um, uh, uh, depictions. What were the people uh, saying when they were made? You know, uh, some of the inscript- petroglyphs were made thousands of years ago. What were people? Um, go ahead, Crystal. <clears throat> well, sometimes, Mark, they were talking about their religious ideology. You see, among the Celtic peoples, that they they had certain days, eight specific days throughout the solar year, the year that they um, would keep track of these solar dates for festivals. You've heard of May Day or Beltane. Um, those mm-hmm. would be what you would call a cross-quarter day which is simply the day between, like in May, the spring equinox to the summer solstice. Then summer solstice would be another day. They may worship a lot of these. For the Celts that we see here in Kansas have to do with with harvest. Some of them are fertility uh, rites or symbols, but there's an intricate use of those cross-quarter days that you don't just find everywhere uh, in the world, but they're they're mostly ha- harvest festivals, 
and to certain deities like Lug or uh, Ford Lunasa, which is a cross-quarter day in August, was a, a celebration of what the Celts called the Hungry Minds when it was just about that time to cut the, the season's grain for the to store up for the winter time or, or your fall harvest and those sorts of things. You might see inscriptions about where to travel or how to get to the next place on your journey, various things like that. But Phil has done extensive research in the Anubis Anubis cave complexes that have to do with a secret religious system, Mark, that he has deciphered. Why don't you let him just tell you quickly about that? Okay. So, 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 so lay, lay it on us. Okay. Uh, the Anubis caves contain uh, depictions of uh, elements of uh, a religion called Mithraism. Mithraism began before 1000 BC, earlier than that. And the Rig Veda uh, books of uh, ancient India record uh, hymns to Mithras, the god that uh, is displayed in the caves at uh, uh, the Anubis Caves in Oklahoma. The the god was spread from there to Persia and from Persia to uh, Asia Minor, and eventually the Greeks and the Romans took it over. And the, the Romans completely changed, not completely, uh, significantly changed the, uh, the iconography, the pictures and storytelling elements of Mithraism. What we have in America is not Roman Mithraism. It is the earlier form that comes from Asia Minor around the Black Sea. And we have duplicate elements uh, repeated there. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have in southeast Colorado and uh, uh, the Oklahoma Panhandle, we have a word for the, the light of the sun it's called Grion, and that word appears first in Sanskrit thousands of years before it ever appeared here anciently in America. And uh, the, the religion of the, uh, of the Anubis Caves uh, is uh, Mithraism, but the Mithraism of Asia Minor and of Persia and uh, some detractors of the concept say, well, it doesn't match the Mithras, uh, Mithraeum, the temple of Mithras in Rome or in, uh, uh, say, Germany or Hungary. And uh, because of that, they say it can't be. But it does match the Mithraeums of uh, Syria and Asia Minor, and Persia. And that, it matches very well, along okay, it, with the... Okay, it, it, go ahead. so, so, so Phil, you, when you were working on you know, that 
episode of America's Unearthed, you know, I think Skull was taking more of uh, uh, the angle that the the ins- inscriptions at the Anubis Cave were m- more closely related to, uh, he said, Syria than, say, Rome. Well, the the Asian version of Mithraism, which was the original version of Mithraism, it originated in India and eventually was picked up by Persia and then to Syria and Asia Minor, Turkey. Uh, and it was pretty much the same in those regions, the same as what we have in Oklahoma. <clears throat> hmm. okay. So there's uh, these little hidden elements there, uh, Mark. There's these little tiny inscriptions that, at, in Cave 2 at Anubis that are just very small, maybe three inches tall, some of them, and others as well. But Phil was able to decipher those elements. He spent years on that, and I just think he should really be applauded for it, just like Ida Jane with her vast research, worldwide research. But to be brave enough to go investigate those West Virginia petroglyphs, even though both of these people, I do want you to know, both of them have been severely persecuted by the academic world for no reason. Their their research is sound. You have wonderful researchers. That's why I've, t- I've sought them out to be mentors for me because I wanted quality research uh, that I could understand and, and learn, you know, as you go along your journey in life. You have to have someone to teach you how to, See what you're looking at in archaeoastronomy. You can use a compass or whatever, but there's just nothing like it's a hands-on approach. And both of them have been persecuted at times for what they have discovered and, and published, but the research they've done is sound. It's, it's quality research that I would invite anyone to look into and delve into. They can, people can learn a lot from what they've written. But these little petroglyphs, Mark, they're fascinating. If you get a chance, Scott Monahan, who's deceased now, he died a little over a year ago. But if you can find Scott Monahan's work, his video productions on the caves um, and some other sites in the Panhandle and southeastern Colorado, he did some work out here in Kansas as well. But his work is good. I'll just throw Scott Monahan in here. I know everyone's familiar with Scott Walter, but years ago Scott did a lot of video documentation that was very well done, and so I would encourage anyone to find it. Okay, and Ida Jane uh, does uh, have a sample of Dr. Credo Mutwa? Yeah, Mutwa's um, three alphabets on 
on a uh, slate he used for yeah. instructional purposes. The Ogum alphabet is shown with its equivalent signs in Kufic, Arabic, and Egyptian hieroglyphs. Okay, there's uh, yeah. you know, some uh, similarities there. Um, and there's uh, it, uh, you were able to link it to the Calendar One site. Uh, I think that's in Vermont. Right. Okay. Can, can you explain a little bit of that, Ida Jane, please? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Calendar One site. Um, uh, <clears throat> has um, a uh, stone chamber in it. <clears throat> and it is aligned for the equinox. Um, but there um, uh, is a point in the field where you can stand and view the mountains in front of you. And there are standing stones on it and other items where you can mark where the sun's going to rise. So um, it's... um. It's a solar site. Wow. Okay. It, it, um, <clears throat> we need. It, is do we have Wayne? Yeah, Wayne's right what, here, what, Mark. Uh, okay, uh, uh, Wayne. What, uh, what do you think of all this? Well, Mark, it's it's fascinating to see this uh, these. Uh, this ancient alphabet that's been used in various parts of the world, uh, showing up right here in the, in the U.S., even in the central part. I think that Crystal does an excellent job on, uh, you know, on some of her presentations and showing the, the ability of these ancient people to travel. Uh, they, were, they were very intelligent. They knew the stars and the sun and the moon, the planets, they would uh, be able to navigate up these systems and uh, in search of, you know, who knows what. They, they were explorers perhaps like we've had in recent history, you know, uh, Lewis and Clark. They went out and explored these uh, the United States all the way to the coast. So uh-huh. people have always been excited about exploration. Maybe they were looking for minerals maybe they were just looking for trading i know there has been a lot of uh, mention about the copper trade and all the copper that's up in the you know in the great lake area that was probably used to trade uh, especially during the bronze age so I, I i think it's fascinating i think there's been a lot of travelers here to the us that's that's in in far long ago times when <clears throat> before and we're just discovering that they did leave their mark here they did leave their alphabets here and their marks and their religious holidays and so that we can we know that they were absolutely here and pretty well documented um You know, I'm sure it's you know the copper is going to come up at the uh, conference um, on October 6th and 7th. Um, you, know, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, the, the transportation of copper, 
down, you know, right down the Mississippi River to um, uh, Cahokia. It, 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 it really seems like uh, Cahokia had a, a major influence uh, radiating out from you know, basically the St. Louis area across the country um you know it seems like you know when we do the uh AAPS uh discussions you know, Cahokia is, usually comes up uh you know does anyone want to touch on the importance of Cahokia Well, Crystal might have something on that. Yeah, well, there's a lot of major trade that went on there. You can see how close it is to the water. You see, what is there, about 100 mounds, small mounds there, that large mound. Uh-huh. It, several of them are aligned to the sun rising and setting. Lunar major minor standstills may be there. I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that, but I know that you have the mound complexes there that show the mound people with this intricate knowledge of the movements of the heavens along with that trading route. And when you look at Cahokia, that it was fortified the way that it was, you can tell that they were protecting themselves and and did a lot of trade. You see, even among that that serpent cult that Dr. Mahan called it in that area, and trade, they, they talked about trade all the way down into Mexico from there, which isn't really unheard of or outstanding. But I think for us, Mark, from Cahokia kind of outward, we've all had our own research areas um, from that central focus point kind of out, east, west, north, south. And you guys have been con copper country have looked you know for the trade route north to south and where did your copper go and those of us in the plains here are just following the track of people and i'm sure cahokia played a major part i did talk with a lakota sioux after one of the talks i gave at a local college and he he talked with me and told me that his people in ancient times would come they had various places that they would stop at trading routes and down south of Wichita, Kansas, there was a huge settlement of native people. They're actually excavating that now because they found that's a battlefield with the Spanish. But he talked to me and said that they know these places. And he said if he just saw pictures of of the petroglyphs, if they were native, he he was very familiar with like the Pawnee symbolism, his own people symbolism, and various peoples because they have kept that alive among some of them, but they're just not open about sharing that information until trust is gained. So um, just fascinating. Yeah, there's actually a a site down here that we've looked at. It's in the southern central part of Kansas that, has some uh, Ogham inscriptions there and uh, a large spring, very uh, very nice place if you had to 
if you had to live there for long periods of time and they found a, a stone there that was uh, they were using to build pipes with, and it was the stone had come, it was not native to here, but it had come from Minnesota. So you can see that there was a lot of trade around in the in the country from the north to the south, and I'm sure that those Cahokia Mounds were, were are quite a central hub. quite a central hub, and they were very large, probably a large trading center being right on the on the Mississippi. Okay. And talking about is the divide here in Kansas for the 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 Great Plains area, the the upper and lower drainage of the, the Arkansas River is near there, and there's actually not too far away of Kansas. We have our own serpent mound. It's not a, a mound that's piled up high. It's a reverse mound, an intaglio that's cut into the ground, the serpent with the egg in its mouth here. And that's not very far from here. That's included in our research because there were these three council circles that were involved with the serpent that creates a three, four, five triangle, which shows an advanced use of mathematics along with that serpent that had had solar alignments connected to it. So it's it's just fascinating to see the, the ancient world. Uh, uh, Crystal, since you were just talking about the uh, uh, you know, the divide where the uh, rivers are running uh, north and south, uh, it is have have you noticed like anything where that that's like a, a power center, like yeah, you know uh, when. Maria Wheelie's been a guest with us. Uh, she's uh, spoken about some, some of the underground uh, like water features that uh, might be associated with um, the you know, r- rivers running by, you know, just just say Ave, uh, Avebury or, or near other ley lines. Are, are, are you finding? Um, uh, uh, u- unique geographical features uh, being a um, uh, uh, place of interest to uh, you know, the, these uh, the ancient uh, uh, native cultures or sure. uh, you yeah, know, more recent. Are... Yeah, there's actually you know you have features here. Water is a significant feature. And, uh, you know, a competent dowser that can find water running underground. But here in Kansas, mm-hmm. that's something that we find a lot here is a water feature with the inscription. Um, you know, that's, that's common. And maybe at some of the sites, if they are solar aligned, you have a place that would create like a natural amphitheater as well. I know Ida Jane's been very involved with some dowsers in the New England sites up in that area, uh, Betty Sensorbow and and various other people, but she knows quite a lot about that as well. But here we always find water nearby. That's an important thing in this part of the country here in the 
the plains because you're getting into the drier desert area the further west you go. So water was extremely important and game migrations and the game trails and things, people needed water to live. So that's a, a very important feature that we we find springs or things of that nature. And okay. salt. That's the big thing here, Mark, is salt. Oh, food, food preservation. Yeah. Yep. It, yeah, that, uh, that's a fascinating subject too. Um, yeah, the various uh, way, you know, ingenious in too to uh, you know preserve um, you know uh, foods if you're a nomadic uh, person, and it, it's it, it's. Amazing how they figured out all this uh, you know, kind of stuff, like you know, the, the the use of salt. Yeah, very much so, and that that is as much uh, an important aspect of staying alive as as anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark, do you mind if I I just quickly ask Phil and Ida Jane one quick question? Go, go, both go right ahead. Um, Hey guys, I just want to know. I've never really asked you guys this, but what did both of you think the first time that you watched the solar alignment? Um, how did you? What was your first impression? I know you've done deep research. Bill, Bill was part of a group effort, uh, Mark. That they he had Bill McGlone, an engineer, avid researcher. Roland Gillespie was a NASA scientist, um, Phil, very good with linguistics. They had a great team working there, and Ida James is a trained journalist. Um, and Scott Monahan has worked with Phil and his group to record the work they did, and Ida James able to do that with her prolific writing over the years. But I'd like to just ask them both, what their first impression and maybe their lasting impression with um, seeing solar aligned sites and, and how they felt in the beginning and how they feel about them now. Uh, Can you talk uh, out of Jane? Out of Jane. Uh, I'll try. Um, <clears throat> the uh, Wyoming County, West Virginia site uh, from Dr. Fell's translation. We knew that there must be uh, a winter solstice alignment. And um, I, I positioned myself, um, uh, we knew where the, um, where the sun would rise over the mountains. <clears throat> and uh, we thought it would go through a small notch in the corner of the cave. And that was my first experience. I saw it. I saw it go through the notch, and I photographed it. And when it went through the notch, it struck a sun symbol and then just slowly washed across uh, the whole petroglyph, which is probably 10 feet long. And uh, that... Uh, that was very impressive, and uh, 
I think I was the first person to ever uh, to ever see that and photograph it, and it was very exciting. And my photos are in uh, wonderful West Virginia magazine, and also uh, in my book. Okay. Awesome. What about you, Phil? Well, when I was growing up, we uh, we were taught by the adults that uh, about the winter solstice, the summer solstice, the equinoxes, and uh, how to tell when they occurred by the shadows, how to tell time, the daily time, uh, hour of the day, uh, using the shadows. And that was kind of an everyday thing for us. Uh, What uh, really struck me most was when we found writing that forecast the alignment and then the alignment happened. Now, that was really exciting. Mm, I'm sure. That was at Crack Cave, was it? Or was it at Anubis? Well, no, before Crack Cave or before Anubis, there was the Sun Temple. Oh, that's correct. And, yes. and uh, reading the writing there that told us when and how the alignment would occur uh, and having that confirmed by uh, the Digistar projector uh, with the uh, triple planetary conjunction, uh, it was. It all came together, and it was very exciting to have that uh, complex of uh, things come together. I bet it was. Okay, and uh, I did, Jane. You, you, yes. Aside from the visual images um, of, you know, the solstice, you know, uh, we were just talking about, you know, in your uh, book, uh, you know, Contact with Ancient America, you, you know, you do have, uh, you know, photos of uh, many of these sites we've been, uh, you know, discussing, you know, you visited there too. Um, but you, know, you also have a, uh, a photo of the is that the Mic uh, the the uh, saying right uh, the Micmac language that uh, was written on a uh, a paper you know you, you, you document it. Um, You know, it's really interesting to have an early sample of what uh, the, you know the, uh, the native written uh, language. You know, you preserve the uh, s- sample of that uh, for us. Um, you know, can, can you tell us a little bit about? about your observations of yet yeah, that kind of uh, artwork 
or you know, self-expression in uh, the writing that is on your page 35. I don't know what's on 35. I, I don't have it in yeah, front it, of me. But, um, it's the Micmac prayer book guided, Jane, from the French mis- missionaries to uh, oh, okay. it's a transcription of a, a Bible, a prayer book in the Micmac hieroglyphic writing system. So it's, yes. he's talking right. about the, the, the syllabary. Uh, that's in the uh, uh, New England Antiquities Research Association uh, Library. And um, Betty Censorbo obtained that. Um, I also... <clears throat> Um, I saw a photograph uh, when I lived in uh, New Fairfield, Connecticut, uh, of um, a, a deed that uh, the landowners or the the settlers that wanted to settle New Fairfield signed a deed, um, and uh, with <clears throat> I'm sorry. And the deed uh, had uh, with they signed it with the local native people. And uh, when I saw the signatures on the deed, I knew that um, uh, the Native Americans uh, had a, a syllabary because the uh, characters uh, were were syllables. And I sent that off. Um, to Dr. Fell, who was able uh, to decipher it. But the names, um, the Native Americans had signed um, the deed uh, with um, a syllabary that represented either their names or their positions uh, in the tribe. So um, uh, that led me to uh, do a chapter of the book on uh, Native American deeds and treaties. And the Native Americans did have uh, writing systems. And uh, a lot of them in the um, Northeast are uh, in the Algonquian, uh, uh, in the Algonquian languages. So, um, wow. No, I, 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 that's just. I think one of you know, the fascinating takeaways from tonight's um, discussion is the various ways that people had ex- expressed their thoughts through some some type of writing system or artistic motifs. I thought, I thought you... It probably started with pictures. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, kind of a shortcut, a representation of the picture would be a character. And a uh, 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 syllabary uh, developed that way. Uh, 
instead of single letters, a syllabary is one part of a one part of a word. It's, it's, well, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. Hi, <clears throat> Mark. Hi. Yes. Uh, Phil's done some exquisite research into an ancient alphabet in Colorado and Oklahoma panhandle area. It goes several places out west even further. But it's this um, Dofari script from Oman. Hey, Phil, tell him about that, would you, about that script and and the five Native American tribes with the blood antigens? That sounds interesting. Okay. The uh, uh, three years ago, the Saudi Arabian uh, media uh, sent a TV crew here, and they did an hour-long documentary on the inscriptions that uh, we found here, because uh, the uh, the incense uh, frankincense trail going from Oman up through Saudi Arabia to the uh, Mediterranean coastline and from there over to Rome, uh, they uh, they have some of the same inscriptions there. And Dr. Al-Thib of Riyadh University is working with us to uh, try to decipher the, uh, uh, the inscriptions. The, the problem is the language appears to be a dead language that has not had... Uh, uh, any surviving uh, books that would uh, uh, tell you something, you know, write it in more than one language so that you could understand this uh, unknown, uh, undeciphered script. But uh, at any rate, we find that... uh, there is a, a, a human lymphocyte antigen. It's kind of a DNA. And you are born with it. You can't acquire it any other way other than from your parents. And this uh, human lymphocyte antigen, B21, is the highest. It's a very rare antigen. It doesn't occur hardly anywhere in the world, except a few places. The greatest place is the heel and sole of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. About 22% of the people have that antigen there. The next highest place is uh, across the Red Sea at the Horn of Africa, there are a few tribes people there that have it. And then the next highest place in the world is right here in the southwestern United States with the Utah Aztecan people. Hmm. Now, how did they get it? Because the Native Americans are supposed to have come across the Bering Straits and down from, the coast to their present location. But, yeah, from Asia uh, to North America. Yes. A thousands of miles away from Saudi Arabia. Yep. But we have 
the ship next to the inscriptions, and the ship is a Middle Eastern ship. It's not an Asian script as ship. But on top of that, uh, there is uh, a Professor Brian Stubbs of the uh, College of Eastern Utah, and he has spent a lifetime collecting the vocabulary of Utah Aztecan people. And he has found, he's published that work, and he has found that in the Utah Aztecan language, and they are the people who have this HLA-B21, this rare antigen, they also have over a thousand Semitic words in their language. Wow. Okay. You know, when we've had, you know, like, uh, David Brody on, you know, maybe a couple other uh, guests they've mentioned, uh, some of this uh, unique DNA, like from the Basque uh, region of Spain, you also get some of the... Um, the Basque words seem like they go back to, uh, you know, like uh, Neanderthal, uh, cave, you know, caveman uh, type uh, time periods. Um, the Basque were probably some of the earliest people in Europe, uh, certainly before the Indo-Europeans that uh, we descend from. It, it, it's yeah, it, it's really a fascinating uh, study when you you look at the, the, these DNA traits and it's like how how does you know uh, an area thousands of miles away end up you know being in this one loc uh, you know from people in this one location. Um, you know what everyone's been presenting tonight. It sounds like uh, you know so, so many people in ancient times or you know, knew America was here, and you know were coming to America for uh, various reasons. Well, yes. it gets even more complicated because we have the Smithsonian. Uh, Institute, and uh, um, let's see if I can remember her name, Mary, uh, uh, she and her husband, they were archaeologists for the Smithsonian, and they excavated in uh, uh, South America, and found that there's Jomon pottery. The Jomon people uh, lived in Japan, and they mm-hmm. lived there before the Japanese. They were early like the Ainu people, uh, um, uh, at an earlier culture than uh, the arrivals from the uh, uh, coast of China and, and uh, that became the Japanese. Uh, now, they dated that pottery 
3200 B.C. And that pottery, samples of that pottery are on display in uh, San Francisco at the uh, uh, San Francisco Museum of Natural History. And uh, it's, it's very unique, and it can't be uh, mistaken for someone else's pottery. So we have people coming from uh, Asia here. We have Indian temples in southern India where the figurines of, of, uh, of various avatars are holding ears of maize in their hand, and that maize can be identified by counting the kernels and rows of kernels. They can tell you exactly which species of uh, maize each of the statues are holding. There's, they, they're holding several uh, species of maize from South America. Oh. Wow. And uh, we have the work of Nancy Yaw Davis uh, with the Zuni Indians showing that the Zunis, who used to live on the uh, California coast, but now live uh, on the border of New Mexico, Arizona, uh, that they not only have the religious iconography uh, and uh, the religious beliefs, many of the religious beliefs, not a total, but a blend of, of uh, Native American and Japanese religious beliefs, and they also have the dentition. Their teeth uh, bear the uh, uh, same characteristics as uh, uh, Asiatic and, and Japanese teeth. And uh, her work has been uh, uh, published. Uh, it's called The Zuni Enigma uh, by Nassiyah Davis. So there are many people who have uh, encountered these uh, oddities that some people refuse to believe exist. And uh, these are all well-credentialed people, and they are recognized in their field as uh, being worthwhile. Uh, individuals, researchers should be paid attention to. And then all of a sudden, uh, the minute they say the wrong word, it's, well, uh, we're not sure we accept that because they didn't get taught by their professor in the college uh, that it was so or even possible. And uh, they have to speak the party line or they lose their their grant money. And that's yeah, we've certainly heard. true. I'm yeah, sure we've heard that. That's a, a common problem in uh, a, a ancient studies. I, I, I'm glad everyone's here uh, making the, their points for w what actually uh, was going on in, in America, you know, with all kinds of people here for thousands of years. And let's see who. Uh, Crystal, do you know, uh, like, uh, Wayne May is uh, uh, 
a scheduled speaker. I'm I'm sure uh, he he can get into all kinds of these uh, types of topics. Um, uh, do, do you know what uh, uh, any of the other speakers will be discussing? Well, I think that. Um let me see, Mark. I did know that. Um, I think that some will discuss the copper trade, of course, up there. I think there will be um, various speakers. The other, Arlen, that you know, that, um, mm-hmm. that was going Arlen to be Andrew. another person. Yeah, to talk about archaeoastronomy. He has some illness with his wife and unfortunately can't make it, but I see here on the flyer that there's some some ancient stones, the Jackson Man stones, some native wisdom, um, various things, and the copper, of course. And someone's going to talk about Gobekli Tepe and and um, the earliest North American visitors. So it sounds fascinating. Um, I hope the Kansas and and Material that I have, and we'll add some of the other things that we've talked about tonight in with my PowerPoint to discuss that. But I I know that Lee Pennington talks a lot about the Welsh and the ancient Welsh travels and things. Um, mm-hmm. He he's researched uh, civilizations in many many places. He's 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 went to South America quite a lot and. Um, done several documentaries down there so it looks like kind of a a mixed bag so to speak of various speakers that sound like we'll have a diverse group of of topics that that seem very interesting i'm sure that the kansas material will fit well within that and and the oklahoma and, and colorado sites that i'll incorporate and show the intelligence of ancient peoples as well mark so um, okay. I wish Judy's phone call would have worked so she could tell you more about that. Yeah, uh, yeah, she, uh, she'll get she'll get the archive tomorrow. Yeah, there's, it seemed like there was a uh, just a, a uh, tech issue. Uh, but uh, Wayne, are you going to be running the projector? Yeah, he always does that like he did <laughs> in the video, Mark. I'm never smart enough to remember to bring the the remote, so he has to press the button. He's the chief button presser among the two of us. <laughs> yep, that's what I'm famous for. Okay. okay do, uh, uh, Wayne, are you going to be talking, or you're, you're, you're just manning the uh, uh, PowerPoint presentation? Yeah, I think I'll just be doing that mostly. Uh, Crystal's a great speaker, so anybody who gets a chance mm-hmm. to see her, she'll find they'll find that out. She's she's good, she's good at speaking and very knowledgeable on this, so it'll be a good time. Yeah, it, are 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 you uh, 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 driving as well? No, we're gonna fly, Mark. We'll okay. fly up there and. and Take the okay. shuttle to the hotel because we're we we need to hurry up and get back home. But for the show tonight, I don't want to cut you off at all, Mark. You you've been a very generous host, but I can see that Ida Jane's 
having some voice problems and and Phil's got a lot of information. He can fill twenty, thirty books with what he's got in his head and so can I to Jane and so you know what you've done for me tonight, Mark, is you've given me a chance to enjoy the show with uh, two of the people that are the most important to me as far as teaching me about ancient American history and letting me just, you know, sponge information from them. I I feel that they've been very kind to me and teaching me things that I've wanted to learn. So thank you for letting us be on your platform for the night. Okay. What, uh, you know, uh, do, does anyone just uh, want to wrap now? And, you know, we could do this uh, another time. I mean, yeah, let's, start or, or, let's, let's, let's get together again, Mark. Let's get yeah. together with these guys again and let's have some prepared stuff and let's talk again soon. Okay. We'll, we'll do that. Have a great time at the uh, uh, conference, and to, you know, I just want to thank everyone for uh, uh, be, being our guest uh, t- tonight. And if you want to learn more about the uh, AAPS conference, you can go to aapscopper.com and you know, uh, all of the contact information and uh you know banner for the uh speakers is there so uh you know uh barbara you can uh uh you know wind uh wind things down and 